0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one with you, and turn to Romans chapter 11 as we continue uh, our series, which uh, now looks like it's a two-and-a-half-year series, like we're going to be done this summer, in the, uh, in the book of Romans. Um, we're going to be looking at the first ten verses of, of uh, Romans chapter 11 in just a couple minutes. Uh, the interesting title this week. At least I thought it was interesting because I came up with it. You may not agree. Uh, knowing what you don't know is a good thing to know. Knowing what you don't know is a good thing to know. I'm, I'm kind of stealing that from, uh, from Socrates, but we'll get back to that in just a minute. In uh, 2002, Donald Rumsfeld held a press conference at the Pentagon. At the time, he was the Secretary of Defense, and he was talking about the war on terror. He was talking about, about uh, our strategy and how we had to think through things, and he said the following, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things that we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Now, <laughs> I I actually read that until it made sense to me. It took me about four or five times to work through it. I had to kind of slow my pace down. I had to kind of really concentrate on it. But each one of those statements, if you if you spend enough time with it, actually makes a, a bit of sense. And, and it's all to say that the unknown is dangerous on some level, whether we uh, understand that or not. Now, I, I mentioned uh, Socrates just a moment ago. In, in Plato's Discourses, there's a point at which Socrates says, when asked the question, he says this, I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know. In other words, I don't know the answer, uh, and, and I'm at a disadvantage. I would suggest that, that the problem in not knowing, I would actually put it this way, the, the problems that I create in my life, that, that you potentially create in your own life, is not that we don't know, but it's actually the actions that we take under the assumption that we have all the information. In others, we don't know what we don't know. And so we uh, are acting in a manner in which we think we have accurate data, accurate um, knowledge in order to make a decision when, in fact, we might be a bit blind. And the results can be disastrous. I'll give you an example. I had a buddy named Bill Gessling. Some people in this room know Bill Gessling. And uh, and we, uh, years ago, we're, were pretty good friends. We saw each other quite a bit more than we do these days. But Bill told a story about when he had graduated from college, went through an ROTC, and he became a second lieutenant in the Army. He was put in charge of a a platoon or or a company, I guess, uh, in artillery. And he was the officer that was supposed to take the coordinates and get the artillery pointed in the right direction and then lob the the shells in. So they're on night maneuvers. And again, he's a a young 22-year-old second lieutenant, and they're out in the, uh, in the woods, in the fields, and he's navigating by his compass and the stars, and long before we had all the GPS things that we have today, I'm going back to the, to the early 1970s, and they get their position set up, and they're, they're asked by the, uh, by the commander, are you ready to fire, do you have the right coordinates, do you have the right target, absolutely, we're locked in, they were given permission to fire, and in this particular exercise, they're using live rounds. Pull firing pins. Off we go. We're lobbing these shells into the target area. About 40 seconds into this exercise, there is on their, their, their box on their radio. There is a, a colonel screaming, cease fire, cease fire, cease fire. Gessling found out a few minutes later that he had the wrong coordinates and the shells were actually landing around the house of the commanding general of that base. Interestingly enough, there's a direct correlation between that experience and Bill not being a lifetime career officer in the United States Army. He was confident he had the right information, and yet he didn't know what he didn't know, and the results were disastrous. I would suggest to you this morning that what the Apostle Paul is is going to, uh, to challenge us with this morning is our presumption of knowledge. Is our presumption to understand something that, that actually either A, is, is beyond our ability to understand, or B, is something that we simply refuse to accept. But in both cases, the end result is that we are acting on faulty information, and our lives and the lives of the people around us can be affected in extremely negative ways. And so I want to look on the, on the one hand this morning, want to look at what Paul says to Christians, what he says to, to those who consider themselves disciples of Jesus, believers, whatever term you, uh, you you like to use for that category, what he says to us about what we don't know, and how he challenges us to consider that in terms of God's bigger plan and adjust the way we approach our lives. And then Paul is going to, uh, I, I think in, a, in an indirect way, but importantly, he's going to address those who are, who are unbelievers, so folks who have not put their faith in Christ, and he's going to challenge some of, of their thinking in order to uh, to offer them once again the words of life. So with that in mind, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknows. Excuse me, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does God reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain it when it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask this morning that you would come and speak your truth into our lives, Father, I thank you for the, the words of the songs that we sang this morning that remind us of, of your glory and your praise. Remind us that, that we are to give thanks for all that you have done in our lives. We, we've reminded ourselves in song, how can it be that, that you would come and that you would offer salvation to us? And yet our chains, if, if we are believers in Christ, our chains have fallen off. We've been set free by a new life. And so we, we are confident, Father, that you don't wait till we pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. You don't uh, wait till we get all the answers. Uh, as the hymnist wrote, we come just, just as we are, just as I am. I have no plea. I have no, I have no basis upon which to suggest that I could earn my salvation. My plea is that Christ is died. Father, I pray for those of us who, who, that is our creed, that you would challenge us this morning through these verses to perhaps reconsider the attitude with which we engage in our in our families, in our world, in our community, with those who, who don't know you. And Father, for those of us who are here this morning that that do not have faith in Christ, uh, perhaps we have intellectual reasons, perhaps we have emotional reasons, perhaps we've just never really stopped to think about it long enough. Father, whatever that might be, I pray that you would show us again your redeeming grace and love through Christ. Father, I cannot explain these verses. If we're, if we're trusting in man's eloquence, we are going to fall well short. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth, that you would apply it to our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to start with the first five verses of, of chapter 11 is where we'll spend the first half of the sermon uh, and, and thinking about the idea of what believers actually don't know or what disciples don't know. And I'll start with this, uh, with this kind of uh, assumption based on these verses. What we know we don't know is the identity of, of all those whom God is going to save. We, we call people who have come to Christ for salvation those who have been redeemed, those who have been bought back. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. And so that word redeemed is a word that, that is used interchangeably with, with believers in Jesus. We don't know the full identity of all whom Jesus will save. We, we don't have a complete list in front of us. We can't look at a person and go, okay, you, yes, you, yes, you, no, sorry, no. We don't have that insight. And Paul is addressing here an assumption by the Christians in the church in Rome that are not Jewish, but rather are, are Gentiles. And the assumption goes something like this. As we look at Jesus' earthly ministry, as we have heard the message proclaimed to us by the Apostle Paul or or by some other ones, or as we were eyewitnesses of that event ourselves, what we saw was the nation of Israel turn against Jesus. They were the ones who actually cried out to Pilate, crucify him. That was the leader of the Jewish nation. Therefore, because they have rejected Jesus, God is done with them. Now, I want to suggest that that probably is a thought that has crossed our minds, not necessarily of the Jewish people, but rather of people in our own day and age who don't know Christ. If you've been a disciple of Jesus for a while and you've maybe shared your faith with some other folks, and and maybe some have faith in Christ and maybe others have not, there comes a time where probably you've had this thought, I don't think they're ever going to believe in Jesus. (laughs) I think they're, you know, they're just they're too stubborn, they're uh, you know, they just they're too distant, whatever the case may be, but I, you know, I kind of throw in the towel with them. I really think that, that, in a sense, God is done with them. Now, we might not articulate it that way because that doesn't sound very nice, but I think Paul is addressing a very real issue in the church, not just in his day, but in our day as well. And he, and he, and he calls them on the carpet, so to speak, in three different ways. The first is he gives his own personal example. In talking about the people of Israel, he says, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying, if God's rejected the nation of Israel, how is it that I have a relationship with Christ? Have you ever been, um, you know, either the first one to a party or or you're hosting a party and and the first folks come in the door and you hear something like this, they kind of walk in and they look around and they say, gosh, nobody's here yet. And they're looking right at you. <laughs> and you're like, am I chopped liver or what? You know, it's not that nobody's here. It's that only one somebody's here. We're, we're just getting started. Now, they're not trying to be mean. Their point is that, hey, I'm the first one here. And I'm like, why didn't you say that? <laughs> Instead of looking at me and saying I'm a nobody. And, and I think Paul's having kind of that same experience. What, what do you mean? God's turned his back on the Jews. Look at, look at my relationship with God through Christ and his Grace, you don't know who God is going to save in the end. He hasn't revealed all of that to you, but you certainly can't argue that He's done with the nation of Israel. The second point He makes is out of the Old Testament, 1 Kings nineteen, where He talks about God confronting the people, or, or c- confronting Elijah on his lack of faith. So Elijah says, "Lord, they've killed all the prophets. They've murdered all of them. They're all worshiping Baal. I'm the only." Guy left. There's nobody else. And God says, Elijah, come here a minute. Really? You think you can see everything? You think you could look into every heart of every person around you, and you're the arbiter on whether they believe or they don't believe? Little Elijah, you know all of that? He says, I got news for you, son. I got 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Just because you haven't met them or you don't know them doesn't mean that they don't belong to me. Again, I think there are times when we look at the world and we go, well, well, if, if those folks don't believe, you know, what's the hope? What's the point? And God says, I, I'm, I'm not sure you have the view from the vantage point that I have. And then thirdly, he reminds them that grace is still front and center. In verse 5, he says this, At this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Remnant is a very familiar term in the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament a lot you've heard that term. Uh, if, if, if you know anything about sewing or, or tailoring, it's, it's the same kind of word. Remnant means that which is left over, uh, the little bit at the end. So if you, you know, if you have a cuff put in your pants and there's a little bit of, of fabric left, that's the, that's the remnant. Uh, a lot of people that sew a lot have bags full of, of cloth because they might need it someday, and they can put some of the remnants together, and it's the same idea. It's the only time in the New Testament, by the way, this word is used. And Paul says there is a group that God is very specifically working in their lives. So who are you to say that God has done with the nation of Israel? It is still his grace that is front and center and first and foremost, and it will not fail. So Paul reminds us that we don't know the complete list of the redeemed, but that kind of made me back up and ask this question. Well, if I've ever had that kind of thought, and I have, uh, I was a little boy when I came to Christ, and my dad became a Christian in his mid-60s. There were probably a 40-year, 40 45-year, yeah, 40 years probably from when I became a Christian to my dad. There are a lot of days where I just thought, well, God's not going to save my dad. There's just, he's just too hard-hearted, too stubborn, or God's not strong enough. So if you've ever had that thought, then I say, what does the question, you know, has God rejected this, this person or this group of people? What does that reveal about my heart? What does that say about Tom Ricks? And I, and I came up with some things that I think it, it diagnoses, and maybe it'll be true with you, maybe it won't, but let me give them to you quickly. The first one is that it's a short sighted assumption based on my personal experience. What I'm saying is, I know everything there is to know about salvation based on what's happened to me. Now, when I stand up here and say it, you go, well, that's kind of a silly statement. Right, it is. It, that, that's a very unfair assumption, and yet I've made that in my heart before. I, you know, I've kind of said, it, if it hasn't happened to me, <laughs> then it's not going to happen. You know, I maybe have family or friends that have rejected Christ. So I have this broad broad sweeping conclusion that the gospel has failed, which leads me to discouragement. You know, I look at my present circumstances. It's not quite working out the way I hoped it would. And so I'm I'm tempted to quit. I'm tempted to throw in the towel. I I watched this week again. uh, I don't know. I've probably seen the movie three or four times, the movie Miracle based on the 1980 U.S. hockey team. I know you're shocked that I watched something that had to do with hockey. Um, based on the, the 1980 hockey team, the Miracle on Ice, right, when they at Lake Placid when they beat the Soviets uh, to get to the to the gold medal game. And, uh, and you know, every, you know do you believe in miracles? Al Michaels' famous call at the end of, of that game, and probably a lot of you uh, who are old enough to remember that. Uh, what you may know, but if you're not a, a true diehard hockey fan, you might not know this, a couple of weeks before the Olympics, the U.S. had been playing an exhibition schedule that had been going off for several months, and they had one last game in Madison Garden, uh, Madison Square Garden in New York City about two weeks before the Olympics started against the Soviets, against the team they beat in Lake Placid. And they lost 9-3. to three. And they were lucky to get three goals, and they were lucky it wasn't 12 to nothing. The Soviets dominated them in every aspect of the game. And they could have said, you know what, we're done. It, it isn't going to work. We can't beat them. And there are moments in my walk with Christ when I, when I look at, at the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. I, I look at, at putting my, my faith out there one more time, and, and it, it hasn't taken, and I'm like, you know what? I just don't think this is going to work with this person. And I'm tempted to quit. And that's what's revealed in that question for my heart. The third one is kind of an inaccurate theology in that, in that I'm questioning the character of God. I'm saying, well, God, if, if my dad hasn't come to faith yet, you're not a good God. Because I will ju- judge, I will be the arbiter between what is right and what is wrong. And, and I'm going to sit in judgment of you. Now, again, as I stand up here and say that, you guys kind of go, ooh, that, that doesn't feel very good. Right. <laughs> and yet, in my heart, if things don't line up the way I think they should, I've already decided this person's redeemed, this person isn't. And I question the character of God. It reveals something about my heart. And the net result of all of this, whether, it, whether it's I don't believe God is strong enough or whether I believe God doesn't care enough or he isn't loving enough, the net result is the same. The mission gets stalled. God's mission into the world through my life gets stalled by my presumption to know everything there is to know about God's plan for salvation. And my heart grows cold to those who would come to know him if I were open my mouth live my life in a transparent way and allow them to see the gospel in action. So what is a proper response? If, if Paul kind of calls us on the on the carpet a little bit, how can we respond in an appropriate way? I think the first is just acknowledge the frustration. Acknowledge the fears. I don't think God worries. You know, I'm certain he didn't worry when I said, Lord, I really just, I don't even know if you can save my dad. I don't think God sat in heaven and, uh, and went, oh my gosh, you know, Tom's lost some of his faith. The whole thing's over. I, everybody out of the pool. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do from here. My father is bigger than that. Just as a father who sees a little one struggling and allows them to struggle a little bit, but knows that his protection is there. Acknowledging our fears, acknowledging our frustration, and then I need to repent of trusting my own judgment over the promises of God. I need to acknowledge that my heart is in the wrong place. And I think that leads me to going back to Scripture and studying the Word of God in a, in a very purposeful manner. I've been reading Romans 11 uh, this week and, and a week or so out as I kind of prepare for these sermons. And I don't know how many times I've read Romans 11, but I would guess well over two or 300 times I've been through Romans. I've been a Christian since I was a little guy. I've read my Bible you know, most of my life. And I can tell you no question, I learned several things this week that I'd never seen in Romans chapter 11 before. And I think part of the challenge for the disciple is a challenge of pride. (laughs) And understand, I don't know all there is to know, and I need to return again and again and again to a disciplined study of Scripture in order to keep the spiritual inertia uh, of, of a passion for the lost going in my heart. You know the law of inertia, right? The body will preserve its velocity and direction so long as no force in its motion directions acts on it. The inertia will continue. The wheel will continue to roll down the hill until something forces it to stop, until a force greater than it causes it to stop. Is apathy in my life stronger than my love for God's word? Is a disappointment because someone I love hasn't come to Christ enough to stop me in my tracks from knowing Scripture. Or rather, will I see the importance of digging into the Word of God in order that I will be found faithful as one who represents the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ? And if I, will, if I will acknowledge my frustration, if I will repent of my prideful, judgmental reaction, if I will put myself into the Word of God, I believe that will lead me to pray for perseverance and engage with the people in my life, not needing to know exactly how it's all going to work out, but trusting in the grace of God that he will save. And I leave the results to him. Gaetano Sotilli is, is the Billy Graham of Italy. Uh, you maybe have heard his name before. Uh, he's been to the States several times. He's a little older than me. He's probably around 60 now, but Gaetano Sotilli is an evangelist. And and he travels, he has traveled for years and years and years uh, all around Italy sharing the gospel. And, and I don't know how many people have come to Christ because of his ministry. Gaetano Sotilli became a believer in Jesus and there was a woman in their village who was a missionary who' had come from the United States and lived in their village and, and proclaimed the gospel, and Gaetano Sotilli and his family, his dad uh, took them to listen to her, and they were the first people in their town to come to Christ under that woman's ministry after she had been in the town sharing her life and sharing the gospel for 12 years. Twelve years of faithfulness of saying, "I, I don't have any converts." nope, nobody's come forward when I offer the the altar call. Billy Graham hadn't shown up in our town, but I'm gonna continue to share the word of God because I trust him. Do I see that kind of faithfulness in my life knowing that I don't know the list and, and, and I don't need to, but trusting in the character of my father who does and will complete his work of salvation. So for those of us this morning that are disciples of Jesus, It's okay to to not know the complete list of the redeemed. It's not okay to allow that to stop us from living missionally in our day and in our generation. But what about those of us who are here this morning that are not convinced? What about those of us that are here this morning that, uh, that, that have said, you know, I'm just, either I'm not sure about Jesus, I don't know enough about it, or I've studied it, I've had people talk to me a million times, and Tom, this is the part of the sermon where I'm going to kind of check out for a little while, I'll smile and I'll be polite, but I'm really not interested. Or maybe you're, you know what, I haven't really heard it before. I, I don't know what it means to put my faith in Christ, but, but I'm not ready to do that yet. Paul says this to the, to the unbeliever, what we know that we don't know is that we don't know God through Jesus. You would say, I I know that. I don't know God through Jesus because I have not put my faith in him. Well, where does that lead us? If that's the decision that you've made in your life, and if that's the the premise under which you are living your life, it it is the the focal point through which you look at the world. You've said no to God through Jesus, which leaves you in charge, and and it allows for you to set a paradigm of decision-making and priorities that are your own. Where does that lead well, Paul says that ongoing rejection of God through Jesus creates a spiritual dullness. And he, and he says this in verse 7. I'm actually going to read the whole verse where I just put part of the quote up. He says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And, he, and he's talking about a dullness of spirit there. He's talking about a, a callousness, is probably the best term you know when you when you when you use something long enough you get blisters and then you eventually get calluses and your hands become dull to the pain and what Paul is saying is is that that Israel was seeking in all the wrong ways well that describes a lot of us today we we reject Christ but we consider ourselves spiritual we we don't believe in the authority of the bible but but we want to say there's a God out there somewhere, and we can probably work our way to heaven, and I'm certainly better than a few of those folks I read about in the paper, so God ought to let me in. So we develop this callousness against the gospel of his grace. We become dull to that, and that covers our hearts. And and the first time you heard the gospel, maybe you were intrigued. Maybe it was at high school, maybe you were at a Young Life camp, or, or maybe the first time you heard the gospel was a friend or a family member sharing it with you, and you went, that is really interesting. Let's talk more about that. you talked a little bit about it, and maybe you were at a point where you went, you know what, I I may very well put my faith in Christ, but there was something that clicked you the other way, and you said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. The next time you heard the gospel might have been the next day. It might have been five years later. Saying no wasn't quite as hard, and the third time, it was easier. The 10th time, it was easier. The 20th time, you didn't even, you totally blocked it out. Why? Because there's a callousness on the heart. One historian has written uh, very powerfully about um, Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, the guy p- by, put in charge by the Nazis to uh, organize the extermination of the Jewish people in the Second World, before the Second World War even, even began. And this person, reflecting in Eichmann's attitude, it, it, literally in about four sentences, says something very profound. He says this, and they call him the commandant. He's, but he's speaking about Eichmann. When the commandant presided at the execution of the first Jews... He faltered momentarily. A woman held up her infant to him, crying, Please take my baby. He turned as though to spare her son the rifle fire. Then he clicked his heels, and he turned away. The next six million souls were simply paperwork. Occasionally, he left the office with a headache, but only because he feared that the gas was running low or the cattle cars were late. Friends, I'm not saying if you reject Jesus that you're going to turn into Adolf Eichmann. Don't, don't hear that. But the first time was hard, and it got a whole lot easier after that. And you might be in a place this morning where, you know what, it's, it's become so easy to reject Jesus that you don't even think about it. I want you to know that that, that is a spiritual condition that you can bring upon yourself. When we demand self-reliance, when we say, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you through Christ. I don't need your grace, I'm going to do it on my own, whatever that is. Look at what God allows into our lives. And these are the terms that are used in verses 8 through 10. A stupor uh, comes over. It's a sense of of not being able to think clearly and perceive exactly what's going on around you. If you've had surgery and you're coming out of surgery, right, in in the recovery room and, you know, it's all kind of weird and fuzzy. If you're a parent, by the way, and your kids are getting a little bit older and they're getting to the point where they're getting their wisdom teeth taken out, you want to be in the recovery room when they wake up. It is so much fun. Both our older two kids have had this experience. And Nathan, who is now twenty-eight, when he was like, I think maybe twenty, he was in college and he got his wisdom teeth out. And so he's in the in the in the little lounge chair there in the recovery room, and he's kind of coming to, and I'm sitting there and he opens his eyes, I'm like, hey son, how you doing? And he's in a bit of a stupor from the drugs still instead. and suddenly he's like, oh, you know, you know, he got all this stuff in his mouth and, and uh, he's, he's trying to talk and I'm like, What what are you saying? And then real loud he goes, Yeah. There's a really hot looking nurse in here who is standing right here, like four feet away. And she's about his age, and I look over, and she kind of grins. And being the loving, compassionate father I am, I say to son, really, what's she look like? <laughs> oh, she's got brown hair and gorgeous eyes, going on, she's really hot. I'm like, oh, really? And now she's laughing, and uh, I said, should we get her phone number? Oh, yeah, get her phone number right away, you know? It was just a, it was a beautiful thing. It was so much fun. I told him the next day, and he really just wanted to die. Um, Katie cried too much. That wasn't quite as much fun. But he was in a stupor. He wasn't seeing the world clearly. There's no way in a million years Nathan Ricks would ever have gone up to that nurse and gone, You're really hot. Can I have your phone number? It would never have happened. His vision of the world was all off. And Paul says, That's what's happened. When you say, God, stand back, leave me alone. God says, Are you sure? You say, Yes, unequivocally, I'm sure leads us to a stupor. It leads us to eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear. And in fact, those things of which we prize, when, when David says, let their own table become a snare to them, what he's saying is, what's your most prized possession? What is that feast, that, that thing that you enjoy the most, that thing for which you live, that will actually become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block so that your back will be bent forever by the guilt and the burden of your own sin. And God allows us that which we demand if we reject him why does this happen? I was thinking about why do I have the reaction I have sometime in my lack of faith. So I asked the same question, what causes this sometime? And I think there's some practical reasons. I, a lot of people maybe say, you know what, I had a really bad experience with people who call themselves Christians. You know, I, I was in a church that, they, and those people were just, you know, they were mean and, and awful, and, and I just, I didn't want to have anything to do. If that was Christianity, I didn't want to be around Jesus, like the, the little boy in Sunday school, right? And, and they heard the story of uh, Adam and Eve, and how God created Eve out of Adam's rib. And the next week, he's in Sunday school, and uh, about halfway through the, the class period, he is, he's clutching his side and, he, and he's just crying, he's just sobbing. And the teacher comes over and says, What's wrong with him? He goes, My side, my ribs, they hurt so bad, I'm having a wife. <laughs> Come on, I don't, you'll, you'll, yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> he was hurt in a way by a misunderstanding. by by an experience, and maybe you've been in that place where where you were hurt by somebody in a church, and you say, you know, I'm just going to kind of throw it all out the window. Maybe perhaps you're not convinced intellectually. You say, you know, I just, I'm not buying the argument from that perspective. But ultimately, I think at the end of the day, it really is an inner battle for control. I I want to rule my life. I, I don't want anybody else to be in charge whether whether it's God through Jesus or anyone else, and so I, I want to live by my own standards, by my own paradigm for life. And Jesus is Lord is actually a foolish or, or hateful idea to me. It makes my makes my skin crawl. What's the what's the cure? Why? How do you how do you respond to that? Is there is there some alternate way of thinking? And, and I and I think there is. If we go to the next slide, if you would please, um. And I'm not going to tell you anything that you probably haven't heard before, okay? Uh, And that's because I'm not basing your salvation on my ability to convince you. I'm basing your salvation and my salvation on the same thing, the grace of God to penetrate my heart that is just as hard as anybody's heart is this morning in this room. But I would would beg you, I would plead with you to reconsider your hesitation, your questions, your fears in light of God's grace. That's what Paul says in verse 5, at this present time. God is still in the business of salvation. There are people that are coming to Christ, and it wasn't just true in Paul's generation. That's a true statement today. And today is a day where you can put your faith in Christ. This is not a promise for some exclusive group of people that know the secret handshake and understand the password and, and are living a better life than you're living. This is a promise for those who have come to the end of themselves and they can't earn it and they know they can't and they trust in the grace and the mercy of God. And I would gently but honestly try to warn you, if your heart is becoming callous and and, and if this is kind of deflecting off, almost like Superman has bullets deflect off of him, today might be a good day to pause and to reconsider your decision in light of, of of God's promise through Paul, that it will become spiritually blind and deaf to his truth and his grace and his mercy, but it need not be that. Believers in Jesus, it need not be that we are people who lack faith and thrive in pride and never share our faith with others. We need to know what we don't know. We don't know who all the redeemed are, but God has called us to help Share that message so that those who will call on the Lord will hear the message. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, it's an opportunity for you to consider his truth. That promise is for you if you'll put your faith in him. Will you pray with me? Father, I I pray for every one of us in this room. I pray for those of us who call ourselves disciples but who have... Uh, maybe never even considered being intentional about sharing our faith with others. It, it might not even be that, that we've come to the conclusion that some of these folks did, that, you know, kind of why waste our time? Father, I pray for those of us who, who are discouraged in sharing our faith or, or who have tried but uh, feel that it, it just it, it doesn't work out the right way. Father, I pray that you would build a faith within us that would persevere, we don't need to know the outcome. We can trust you with those, uh, those that part of, of the information, that part of the equation, but that we would know that you have called us to share your word in the way in which we live and the manner in which we treat people and, and the words that we speak. And Father, I pray for any here this morning that don't know you as, as Savior and Lord, that they would not have callous hearts, but that your spirit would, would enter their hearts, that your truth would... Uh, just be absorbed in their hearts and their minds this morning, and that they would call on the name of the Lord for salvation, and that they too would join those who are being saved by grace. Lord Jesus, we pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen.